Part three, chapter twenty one of the Manxman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Ashworth. The Manxman by Sir Hall Kane. Part three, chapter twenty one. Kate had been kept awake during the dark hours with a sound in her ears that was like the measured ringing of far-off bells. When the daylight came she slept a troubled sleep, and when she awoke she had a sense of stupefaction, as if she had taken a drug and was not yet recovered from the effects of it. Nancy came bouncing into her room and crying, "'It's your wedding day, Kitty!' She answered by repeating mechanically, "'It's your wedding day, Kitty!' There was an expression of serenity on her face. She even smiled a little. A sort of vague gaiety came over her, such as comes to one who has watched long in agony and suspense by the bed of a sick person, and the person is dead. Nancy drew the little window-curtain aside, stooped down, and looked out and said, "'Happy the bride, the sun shines on,' they're saying. "'And look, the sun is shining.' "'Oh, but the sun is an old sly-boots,' she answered. They came up to dress her. She kept stumbling against things, and then laughing in a faint way. The dress was the new one, and when they had put it on her they stood back from her and shouted with delight. She took up the little broken hand-glass to look at herself. The great eyes sparkled piteously. The church bells began to ring her wedding peal. She had to listen hard to hear it. All sounds seemed to be very far away. Everything looked a long way off. She was living in a sort of dead-white dawn of thought and feeling. At last they came to say the coach was ready, and everything was waiting for the bride. She repeated their message like a machine, made a slow gesture, and followed them downstairs. When she got near to the bottom, she looked around on the faces below, as if expecting to see somebody. Just then her father was saying, "'Mr. Christian is to meet us at the church.' She smiled faintly and answered the people's greetings in an indistinct tone. There was some indulgent whispering at sight of her pale face. "'Pale but genteel,' said someone, and then Nancy reached over and drew the bride's veil down over her face. At the next minute she was outside the house, standing at the back of the wagonette. The coachman, with his white rosette, was holding the door open on one side, and her father was elevating her hand on the other. "'Am I to go, then?' she asked in a helpless voice. "'Well, what do you think?' said Caesar. "'Shall the man slip off and get married to himself, think you?' There was laughter among the people standing round, and she laughed also and stepped into the coach. Her mother followed her, crinkling in noisy old silk, and Nancy Joe came next, smelling of lavender and hair-oil. Then her father got in, and then Pete, with his great warm presence. A salute of six guns was fired straight up by the coach windows. The horses pranced, Nancy screamed, and Granny started, but Kate gave no sign. People were closing round the coach door and shouting all together as at a fair. Good luck to you, boy. Good luck. Good luck. Pete was answering in a rolling voice that seemed to be lifting the low roof off, and at the same time flinging money out in handfuls as the horses moved away. They were going slowly down the road. From somewhere in front came the sound of a clarionet. It was playing the black and the grey. Immediately behind there was the tramp of people walking with an even step, and on either side the rustle of an irregular crowd. 
The morning was warm and beautiful. Here and there the last of the golden cushag glistened on the hedges with the first of the autumn gorse. They passed two or three houses that had been made roofless by the recent storm, and once or twice they came on a fallen tree trunk with its thin leaves yellowing on the fading grass. Kate was floating vaguely through these sights and sounds. It was all like a dream to her, a waking dream in Shadowland. She knew where she was and where she was going. Some glimmering of hope was left yet. She was half expecting a miracle of some sort. Philip would be at the church. Something supernatural would occur. They drew up sharply, the glass of the windows rattled, and the talk that had been going on in the carriage ceased. "'Here we are,' cried Caesar. There were voices outside, and then the others inside stepped down. She saw a hand held out to her, and knew whose it was before her eyes had risen to the face. Philip was there. He was helping her to alight. "'Am I to get down too?' she asked in a helpless way. Caesar said something that made the people laugh again, and then she smiled like faded sunshine and took the hand of Philip. She held it a moment as if expecting him to say something, but he only raised his hat. His face was white as marble. He will speak yet, she thought. Over the gateway to the churchyard there was an arch of flowers and evergreens, with an inscription in coloured letters. God bless the happy pair. The sloping path going down as to a dell was strewn with gilvers and slips of fuchsia. At the bottom stood the old church mantled in ivy, like a rock of the sea covered by green moss. Leaning on her father's arm, she walked in at the porch. The church was full of people. As they passed under the gallery, there was a twittering as of birds. The Sunday school girls were up there, looking down and talking eagerly. Then the coughing and hemming ceased. There was a sort of deep inspiration. The church seemed to hold its breath for a moment. After that there were broken exclamations, and the coughing and hemming began again. How pale! Not fit, poor thing! Everybody was pitying her starved features. Stand here, said somebody in a soft voice. Must I, she said quite loudly. All at once she was aware that she was alone before the communion rail, with the parson, old ruddy-faced parson Quiggin, in his white surplice facing her. Someone came and stood beside her. It was Pete. She did not look at him, but she felt his warm presence again, and was relieved. It was like shelter from the eyes around. After a moment she turned about. Philip was one step behind Pete. His head was bent. Then the service began. The voice of the parson muttered words in a low voice, but she did not listen. She found herself trying to spell out the Manx text printed over the chancel arch. Banateshen to cheat, and enin icheren. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Suddenly the words the parson was speaking leapt into meaning and made her quiver. Is commended of St. Paul to be honourable among all men, and therefore not by any to be enterprised, nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly? She seemed to know that Philip's eyes were on her. They were on the back of her head, and the veil over her face began to shake. The voice of the parson was going on again. Therefore, if any man can show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak, or else hereafter forever hold his peace. She turned half around. Her eyes fell on Philip. His face was colourless, 
almost fierce. His forehead was deathly white. She was sure that something was about to happen. Now was the moment for the miracle. It seemed to her as if the whole congregation were beginning to divine what tie there was between him and her. She did not care, for he would soon declare it. He was going to do so now. He had raised his head. He was about to speak. No, there was no miracle. Philip's eyes fell before her eyes, and his head went down. He was only digging at the red beige with one of his feet. She felt tired, so very tired, and oh, so cold. The parson had gone on with his reading. When she caught up with him, he was saying, As ye shall answer at the great day of judgment, when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, that if either of you know any impediment why ye may not be lawfully joined together in matrimony, ye do now confess it. The parson paused. He always paused at that point. The pause had no meaning for him, but for Kate how much? Impediment. There was indeed an impediment. Confess? How could she ever confess? The warning terrified her. It seemed to have been made for her alone. She had heard it before, and thought nothing of it. Now it seemed to scorch her very soul. She began to tremble violently. There was an indistinct murmur which she did not catch. The parson seemed to be speaking to Pete. Love her, comfort her, honour and keep her, so long as ye both shall live. And then came Pete's voice, full and strong from his great chest, but far off, and going by her ear like a voice in a shell. I will. After that the parson's words seemed to be falling on her face. Wilt thou have this man to thy wedded husband, to live together after God's ordinance in the holy estate of matrimony? Wilt thou obey him and serve him, love, honour, and keep him in sickness and in health, and forsaking all other, keep thee unto him, so long as ye both shall live? Kate was far away. She was spelling out the Manx text. Banet, Teshen, Tachit. But the letters were dancing in and out of each other, and yellow lights were darting from her eyes. Suddenly she was aware that the parson's voice had stopped. There was blank silence, then an uneasy rustle, and then somebody was saying something in a soft tone. Eh? she said aloud. The parson's voice came now in a whisper at her breast. Say, I will. Ah, I... she murmured. I will, that's all, my dear. Say it with me. I will. She framed her lips to speak, but the words were half uttered by the parson. The next thing she knew was that a stray hand was holding her hand. She felt more safe now that her poor cold fingers lay in that big warm palm. It was Pete, and he was speaking again. She did not so much hear him as feel his voice tingling through her veins. I, Peter Quilliam, take thee, Catherine Cregeen. But it was all a vague murmur fraying off into nothing, ending like a wave with a long upward plash of low sound. The parson was speaking to her again, softly, gently, caressingly, almost as if she were a frightened child. Don't be afraid, my dear. Try to speak after me. Take your time. Then aloud, I, Catherine Cregeen. Her throat gurgled. She faltered, but she spoke at length in the toneless voice of one who speaks in sleep. I, Catherine Cregeen, take thee, Peter Quilliam. 
The toneless voice broke. Take thee, Peter Quilliam. And then all came in a rush, with some of the words distinctly repeated, and some of them droned and dropped. To my wedded husband, to have and to hold, have and to hold, from this day forward, till death do us part, death do us part, therefore I give thee my troth. Troth. The last word fell like a broken echo, and then there was a rustle in the church, and much audible breathing. Some of the schoolgirls in the gallery were reaching over the pews with parted lips and dancing eyes. Pete had taken her left hand, and was putting the ring on her finger. She was conscious of his warm breath, and of the words. With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship, and with all my worldly goods I thee endow. Amen. Again she left her cold hand in Pete's warm hand. He was stroking it on the outside with his other one. It was all a dream. She seemed to rally from it as she moved down the aisle. Ghostly faces were smiling at her out of the air on either side, and the choir in the gallery behind the schoolgirls were singing the psalm, with John the Clerk's husky voice drawling out the first word of each new verse as his companions were singing the last word of the preceding one. Thy wife shall be as the fruitful vine upon the walls of thine house, thy children like the olive branches round about thy table. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. They were all in the vestry now, standing together in a group. Her mother was wiping her eyes, Pete was laughing, and Nancy Joe was nudging him and saying in an audible whisper, Kiss her, man, it's only respectable. The parson was leaning over the table. He spoke to Pete, and then said, A substantial mark, too. The lady's turn next. The open book was before her, and the pen was put into her hand. When she laid it down, the parson returned his spectacles to their sheath, and a nervous voice, which thrilled and frightened her, said from behind, Let me be the first to wish you happiness, Mrs. Quilliam. It was Philip. She turned towards him, and their eyes met for a moment. But she was only conscious of his prominent nose, his clear-cut chin, his rapid smile like sunshine, disappearing as before a cloud. He said something else, something about a new life and a new beginning, but she could not gather its meaning. Her mind would not take it in. At the next moment they were all in the open air. End of Part 3 Chapter 21